book of Genesis, we come to the 15th chapter of this book, this very first book of the Bible. How many books are in the Bible? 66 of them, written by at least 42 authors, spanning 2,000 years from the first guy to the last guy. And yet it's really not 66 separate books. It's one story from the beginning to the end. And the more you read it, the more you read the history, and the more you read the evidence of the Scripture, the more I'm convinced it is exactly what it says. It's God-breed. It was God-inspired. And uh, we have been talking about this man, Abraham. That's what his name will be changed to in a couple chapters. His name is still Abram, as we are in the 15th chapter. Um, that story that started in the last few verses of chapter 11, chapter 12 talks about the fact that God called Abram from the land of Ur, of the Chaldees, Babylon. He called them to go to a land. He said, I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. So he left Ur and eventually made it to the land of Canaan. God said, this is the land that I'm going to give to you and your children. We talked about it two or three times that Abram built altars and he worshiped the Lord. We talked about that moment in time when, when famine came and he was afraid so he took his family and moved down to Egypt. And things didn't go well there, and God sent him back to the land of Canaan. The last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the story of after he and his nephew Lot had to separate because their herds got too big, their, their groups of people too big, and, and Lot moved towards Sodom. Then... Uh, the king of Sodom, along with four other kings there in the southern part of the land of Canaan, around the southern part of the Dead Sea, rebelled against the northern kings from the north and the east who had been taxing them for years, telling them, you'll pay us this. And when they came to say, we're going to receive our tax this year, these kings said, no, you're not, which caused those four kings from the north to bring their armies and wipe out people in the southern part of the land of Canaan around the Dead Sea. And they took people captive. Lot being one of those and his family. And they began to march them back to the north where they had come from. Back towards what we would call the land of Iran and Iraq. Abram had over 300 men in his employ that he had already trained for battle. Because it was kind of feudal days. In those days, people would, there's one city would fight against another city trying to increase their real estate. So war was a common part of life in the Middle East. I paused. Do you know of any time in your life, time when there was not some kind of skirmish going on between those nations? It started way back then. We talked about the fact he pursued those with his 365 men or whatever it was, they, or 318 men. They won the battle. They were bringing back the spoils of wars, the prisoners of war. When they came by the city of Salem, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, came to greet them, and also the king of Sodom. 
We talked about that, what the, all of that meant in the last couple of messages. Today, as we come into the 15th chapter, it begins with these words. After these things, what things? What we just talked about. After he had paid tithe to Melchizedek, after he told the king of Sodom, I'm not going to keep any of your stuff because I don't want you to say that you've made me rich. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he, God counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. After these things. Now, I don't know if this was an immediate thing that took place. Sometimes in the scripture, when it says after these things, there's a period of time because God did not inspire Moses to write a biography. He just wanted to give some high points of history, especially the history that relates to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it said the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. God spoke to him on the virtual screen in his brain. He gave him a vision. And I have friends that the Lord has given to them visions. And it's like watching a movie. They, and they describe for me the things they've seen. That's not the way that God communicates with me, at least not to this point in time. And I don't remember the Bible said, old men who dream dreams, young men see visions, or vice versa. I guess I'm neither young or old yet. But he sees this vision, and more important than what he sees is what he hears. He hears the Lord speaking to him. I wish we knew what was going on in his mind, but we don't really know. I think there's some clues that are given to us in the context of, of this chapter and these six verses that we've read. But the first thing the Lord said to him is this. And God speaks this to you as well. God tells us to fear not. Fear not. Fear not. We talked about this in The Man in the Mirror last week. We talked about a chapter on fear. And I made the comment that somebody said there's 365 and, and one of the guys pulled up his phone, his smartphone, and plugged it in, asked the question, and that's what the Google said or whatever it said, is that there's 365 times in the Bible where God says, do not be afraid, fear not. In some form, fear not, do not be afraid. So why did God, why was his first words to Abram, fear not? 
As I read the rest of Scripture, it seems to me that's the first salutation whenever a man had an encounter, whether it be in a dream, a vision, or actual appearance of an angel or the Lord. The first words out of the angels to those men, fear not, fear not. When Gabriel appeared to Mary, first words were, fear not. Because there is something of the presence of divinity, something of the presence of somebody who's come from the throne room of God, that there's an awareness. So it could be in the context of that. Uh, you know, I've heard people tell me, people have told me that the first time coming into a gathering like this, and they, as people began to worship the Lord, they sensed something that they had never sensed before, and it kind of made them, what is all of this about, until you get to know that that's what the presence of the Lord feels like when we're gathered together. And so it could have been that kind of context that God says to him, fear not. Um, and then God says to him, I am your shield. I am your shield. So it seems to me there's something else going on in the terms of fear beyond just the presence of God. I am your shield. I've read several scholars who look at this context and they say what could be going on in Abram's mind is now he has won a battle with these four kings from the northeast. It doesn't say that he wiped them all out. Do you know what that means? That means they might be coming again to do what they did before. And you know, when, when your adrenaline's running and you're in the midst of the battle, you can be really courageous. But when the adrenaline stops, and then you stop to think about, what did I do? What did I do? What is going to happen? Because, as I already pointed out, there has always been a struggle in that part of the world for dominance, for taking real estate. Right now, there is a war going on for that very reason. People wanting geography, real estate. Abram had created a new list of enemies by defeating those four kings of the north. But the Lord comes to him and says, Fear not, I will be your shield. I will be your protector. And then God makes him another statement. Your reward will be great. Your reward will be great. Another way, the last part of the verse is training. God's saying, I will be your great reward. Anybody ever made a major decision in your life and the moment you made it, you were sure it was the right one? But a couple of days later, these doubts just begin to roll through your mind. Did I? Did I did, I'm not seeing anything positive happening here. I'm not seeing what I thought the results were going to be. I wonder how many people Abram could have been hearing questioning his decision to not keep the spoils of war. 
We talked about this last Sunday. Because he conquered these people in battle, the normal thing in that culture was be all the spoils of war would be his. People could have been saying, you're not very smart, Abram. You didn't take anything. You gave it all back to the king of Sodom. You could have, think, look at all that stuff you could have had. Remember, Abram went to war on behalf of his nephew Lot. They won that great victory. All that Abram got out of the battle was God. God said, don't be afraid. I'll be your shield and I'll be your reward. Kent Hughes in his writings suggests this. God was teaching Abram to be satisfied with him, with God alone. God was teaching Abram to be satisfied with him alone. That is what we are taught all the way through Scripture. To be satisfied with the Lord, with God as our source, as God as our partner. In the Sermon on the Mount, one of the lessons that Jesus taught, he said, don't worry about your life, what you will eat and what you will wear. Life is more than food and clothes. And then he said, consider the birds of the air. They don't miss a meal because the Father in heaven makes sure that they're fed. How much more will the Father do that for you? He said, your clothes? Consider the lilies of the field. Solomon, in all of his riches, could not buy adornment like the lilies of the field. How much more the Father cares for you? Which one of you can add a couple inches to your height just by worrying about it? He says. He said this, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Remember up the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Philippi. They had sent him an offering, out of, not out because they had great abundance, but in the midst of their persecution, because he had been incarcerated for, for preaching, and he was in Rome, and they, prisoners had to come up with their own sustenance, their own way of finding food, and, and they had given the offering. And Paul writes back to them, a thanksgiving for what they've given, and then he makes this declaration, my God will supply all of your needs according to His riches in glory. God Himself is our great reward. God Himself is our great reward. Knowing that we are His and He is ours, there's nothing greater in this world to know. I belong to God, and God belongs to me. God cares for me. Look again at his response. Verse 2, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Verse 3, and Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Now, in order to get the impact of those questions that he gives to God, and I think this is the first time that we hear him questioning God, you remember God had told him when he called him years before, at least a decade before, 
from Ur, I will make of you a great nation. I will make you a father. of the... They were childless. God said, I'm going to give you this land, but I'm going to give you children. He's not seen the children yet. And the land, he never really possessed it. He just moved around on it, claiming it in the name of, of, of Yahweh for himself, actually for his children who would come years later. He's traveled this thousand miles from Babylon to where he is now. When is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? Faith lesson number one. God's will must be fulfilled in God's way and God's time. And nobody said amen. Because we really don't like that. God's will must be filled in God's way and God's time. And God's time never seems to be the same time that we are operating on. That's because God doesn't dwell in time. God dwells in eternity, and God knows exactly the right moment for something to take place. God had made a promise. God always keeps his promises. What Abraham and Sarai did not realize is that God didn't need their help. In fact, it seems to me he was waiting for a time in their life when the natural cycles of, of reproduction had gone past. The scripture says they thought they were as good as dead when it came to making babies. So that they would know that it was absolutely God who blessed them. They could not take any credit for the blessing that God was going to put on them. Verse 4, chapter 15, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Now, the previous times, there's at least three other times up to this point where God has said, I will make of you a great nation. But this is the very first time where God specifically says, this is going to be a son from your loins. This will be your offspring. And then he gives to him a visual. It said, and he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. He didn't say that you'll have as many as the stars. He just said, look at the stars. If you can number them, then you can count the children that are going to be called the sons and the daughters of Abram over the history. So shall your offspring be. Now, we live in the Milky Way. One of millions of galaxies. It'd only take you 100,000 light years to travel across the Milky Way. Have you ever been out way outside the city at night, on a clear night? You know, here in the city, we see some stars, but you go out in the hills, go camping, go to Montana, and go outside at night, and you cannot believe the number of stars that you will see with your naked eye. There's only, they, nobody's counted all of them in the Milky Way because it's not possible 
to live long enough to count them all one by one. But they've come to the conclusion there's 100 billion stars just in our galaxy, and there's so many more galaxies that they don't even know where they all end. If you can number them, he said, I am going to bless you. I'm going to give you children that you're not going to be able to number. And at that moment, I believe Abram was speechless. <laughs> and then this verse, verse 6, and he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord. This verse is among the most important verses in the whole Bible. He believed God. And he counted it to him as righteousness. He believed. If we were to look at that word in the Hebrew, we would see that that word believed, from that, very, from that root word, we get our word amen. That word that I ask you to say when I conclude in prayer. Amen. Amen. Amen means it shall be so or it is so. Not may it be so. Amen means yes, that is true. That is so. He believed. He believed. He's not saying it's, uh, it may happen. It's an assertive, this is real. God is going to give me a son. Believed. Another, if you're looking at Hebrew dictionaries and lexicons and all that, means to lean your whole weight on. To lean your whole weight on. He believed. Every one of you right at this moment are sitting in a chair that you believed would hold your weight. I don't see anybody hovering over the chair, holding yourself up in that crouched position just in case that chair is going to fall. And I know I'm being a little bit ridiculous, but I want you to catch the essence of believe. I put my whole weight on this truth, on this fact. When the Lord came to Abram and he looked up the stars in light of what God said, God imputed to him righteousness. God counted it to him as righteousness. God imputed it. There are three times that this verse is quoted in the New Testament. A couple of thousand years after Abram lived. And it always has to do with our path to receiving the salvation that Jesus provided for us. We're going to look at Romans chapter 4 in a moment, but first let me take you to what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
We are saved through faith. And you didn't even create that faith. It was a gift of God. Faith in what? Faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us. It's not the faith that saved us. It's the one that we put our faith in that saves us. But we don't work to get that gift. We don't buy that gift. We receive it by faith. And because we believe, God imputes to us. He counts it as righteousness. So let's go to chapter 4 of Romans. Paul is writing to the church that has been birthed in the city of Rome in the middle of the first century A.D. He has not been there yet, but he has friends who have been there and come and reported to him. He has friends who have been with him who are there at that particular time. In the church in Rome, it was made up of of Jewish people who had been raised in Judaism who converted to Christianity. It wasn't called Christianity yet, but the people of the way. They believed in Jesus, that he was the Messiah. There were Gentiles who had no, no connection to Judaism and all the ceremonial laws that went with Judaism. And, and so there was this a little bit of tension going on in the church the Jewish Christians thought that you needed to be Jewish in order to be a Christian, and they're trying to get the Gentiles to be, you know, to go through all of the Jewish things first. And, and Paul is trying to show them it's not about going through the rites of Judaism, but being circumcised and, and memorizing all the laws and keeping all of those that makes you righteous. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of believing in Jesus Christ. Salvation is all about faith in Jesus and not working for it. The Apostle Paul, before he met Jesus Christ, was a man who worked for salvation. He worked at keeping the 613 laws that the the Jewish leadership had defined out of the Torah. 613, most of them had to do with outwardly things, the way they looked, the way they dressed, the way they talked, the way they washed their hands. Salvation is a matter of leaning my whole weight, the weight of my life, on the fact that Jesus Christ died in my place. God raised him from the dead because Jesus was sinless. And in his sinlessness, by his death, he paid the penalty for our sins yours and mine, and every other human being. So Romans 1 says, 4, 1 says this, What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And here's the quote from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God. God went, um, Paul goes on to say, if you work for your wages, it can't be counted as a gift when you receive your wages. In the latter part of, of the third chapter of, Rome, of Romans, Paul lets us know the wages of sin is death. Separation from God. But the gift of God is Eternal life. The gift of God is eternal life. He goes on 
in verse 7 to say this. He's talking about David, and he's quoting now from, from Psalm chapter 32, a psalm about forgiveness. David wrote, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That word count, reckon, would be a more literal translation, reckon, a mathematical term, a, uh, a term that is used in, in accounting. David is so grateful for the forgiveness of sins, so grateful his sins have been forgiven. It was not just religious jabber about forgiveness. Remember, Scripture said David was a man after God's own heart. That's why he was chosen to be the king of Israel, to replace Saul. But there came a day when he looked up on his roof, his balcony, and he looks over into his neighbor's yard, and there he sees his neighbor's wife bathing herself. And he breaks the first of three of the Big Ten in that moment. He begins to covet her body. He sends a messenger and invites her to his house, his palace, whatever it was. And they engage in a moment of adultery. So he covets, he lusted after her, he acts on that, they have sexual intercourse. She becomes pregnant. There's a problem. Bathsheba's husband Uriah has been away at battle, and there is no way that she's pregnant by Uriah. So he brings Uriah home from battle and said, why don't you take some R&R &R with your wife? And Uriah says, no way, man, because my fellow men are out on the battlefield. No way I'm coming home and, and enjoy my wife. And so he won't go home. You remember what David did when he sent Uriah back to the battle? He made sure that he was going to die in battle. He gave the command to his commander, signal the retreat, but don't let Uriah know, and left him in the middle of the field to die. So now he's committed covetousness, adultery, and murder. You know what the problem is with those three particular sins, according to the Old Testament law? You know what the Old Testament law said to do with him? A death penalty. There was no offering they could bring that would bring forgiveness. But David cried out to God for mercy and for grace. And God forgave him and imputed to him, gave to him righteousness. Not flippantly, not without justice being made. There were sacrifices offered that looked forward to the sacrifice of Jesus. 
When it says he imputed righteousness, when he gave them him righteousness, it did not come free. In accounting, you don't have the, the sheet this, because we haven't made 2 plus 2 equal 2 or 4 yet. In accounting, you have to balance the books. How did God balance the books? He sent Jesus to become one of us, to die on the cross in our place. And when we put our faith in what Jesus has done, we receive the gift of forgiveness of sins that not only forgives us, but brings us into the family of God, the forever family of God. Because Jesus died for our sins, God no longer counts our sins against us if we believe in Jesus as our Savior. Because my account has been transferred to Jesus' account, or I should say Jesus' account has been transferred to my account, debt canceled, debt has been paid. Paul goes on in Romans 4 to point out that the Jews who were all about the ceremony of circumcision being proof that they were the people of God. He said it was 14 years or so before Abram was circumcised that God imputed righteousness to him because he believed in God. Paul makes it very clear. It was not something Abraham did that saved him. It was the fact he believed in what God would do for him. It's a matter of faith. The second place we see Genesis 15 and 16 in the New Testament is in Colossians chapter 3. Paul writing to the church of Galatia. Just as Abram believed God and it was counted him as righteousness, know then that this, those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abram, Abraham, the man of faith. Again, Paul is writing to church in Galatia where there's Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. This particular gathering, there were some Jewish folks, again, trying to teach these Jew- Gentile Christians, you've got to become a, a Jew in order to be a good Christian. You have to honor all the Jewish laws. You attain your salvation by doing these good works. Paul refers back to Abraham to remind him our salvation is a result of leaning all of my weight upon what Jesus did. He did the work. We believe. He did it. He did it. He died for our sins. God raised him from the dead. Now it is by faith that we are saved. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says this, without faith it is Impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We are saved through faith. And God is the one who gives us the gift of faith to believe that. Our faith in him and what he did on the cross. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes about this issue of faith and works from a little different perspective. Now, some people believe that, in fact, I think it was Martin Luther that believed that these, one of these books shouldn't be in the Bible because he didn't agree with Paul. 
But that's not the case. They come at it from a different point of view. And they say the same thing in different terminology. Verse 2, James 2, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for their body, what good is that? So also faith by itself does not have works, is dead. Someone says, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder that God is one. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Verse 22. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and was counted him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now let me rephrase that and how I see this. He did not contradict Paul. What he's saying, we're saved by faith alone, but not faith that is alone. Paul wrote, it's grace alone, it's faith alone, and that's still true. It's faith alone and grace alone, but it's not faith that is faith is that is a faith that is alone. And by that, this is what I mean. I say I have faith, as James writes it, if I say I have faith in Jesus Christ and do not walk in obedience to his word, then John said I'm deceiving myself. I really don't have faith in what Jesus has done. I don't have faith. Faith without works is dead. My works don't give me my faith, but because I have faith, I will do what God says. I will go where God leads. I will follow Him. In Hebrews chapter 11 that I referred to a few moments ago, it talks about, by faith, Abel offered a more perfect sacrifice. Because he, by faith, he did this action that obeyed God. By faith, Enoch walked with God, and he was no more. He walked in obedience with the Lord. By faith, Noah did what? He built an ark. Why did he build an ark? Because God told Noah to build an ark. By faith, Abraham left Ur the Chaldees and went to a land that God showed him. By faith, Abraham and Sarah had a child in their old age. We'll get to this story. It's one of my favorite stories in a day or two. God shows up at their tent. Sarah's behind the tent. God says, nine months from now, she's going to have a baby. She just happened to be 89 years old. 
And she laughed. God says, what are you laughing about? And then she lied. I didn't laugh. But he's 99 and she's 89. And they believe God enough to do what you had to do to have a baby. Hebrews talks about that. By faith, they believed. Faith without works is dead. The question today is this. Do I believe? Do I believe? Do you believe in Jesus? Or do you believe in yourself and what you're able to do? If you say, I believe, that leads us to the next question. Is my faith real enough that it has changed my life? Is my faith real enough that it has changed my life? The only way to be saved is faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. I have shared my favorite story about what it means to believe several times over the past however many years I've been here. But it comes from 1859, right here in the United States, in fact, on the border of the United States. It's the story of the great Blondin. Charles Blondin is the name he became known by. He was actually a French man, had a different name, and I don't remember the different name. I just remember the name he became famous for. And a guy that he... Full grown, he was five foot four and 140 pounds. But at the age of four, he discovered he had a, a particular ability that most people did not have, and that he could walk on a tightrope without falling. And the story is that at the age of four, he strung a rope between two chairs and walked across it. Well, in 1859, he'd done high wire type things here, there, and everywhere. And the way that I read this story is that there was a couple of, of new um, hotels that had been built, one on one side of the Niagara Falls on the United States side and one on the Canada side of the Niagara Falls. And they hired him to come and do this publicity stunt, and they stretched a rope across the Niagara Falls, about a quarter of a mile. And... Um, I think it was like June the 30th, 1859. He walked across and came back across. And then he did it, they believe that over the course of years, about 300 times he did it. Uh, they walked back, and he would do crazy things. I mean, one time he, one time he, he went out there and he took a chair and a table and, and he was going to sit down in the middle. The, unfortunately, the chair fell over down into the falls and he almost fell, but he recovered himself. Another time he took a, a camp stove and he, he made an omelet when he was out there in the middle and he dropped it down to the boat that was down below him and going around. But the time that, I, that gives an illustration of what it means to believe, I think it was July the 15th. Um, on that day, he started on the United States side, and he walked backwards all the way to Canada, 
on that rope. And then he came back to the United States pushing a wheelbarrow in front of him. And the crowd is going crazy. And he makes this challenge to the crowd. Do you believe I can push a person in this wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls? And everybody's, yes, yes, yes. And he finds one man who's really excited near the front. You believe I can do that? Oh, I believe you can do that. Get in. (laughs) Nobody got in. He did carry his manager across on his back one day. To believe in Jesus. Get in. Get in. Have you made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior this morning? If not, get in. He will be your shield. He'll be your great reward. He'll give to you eternal life. Will all your problems go away? No, you'll probably have more. But you'll have a partner who's greater than anything, anywhere, anytime, who says, I'll live inside of you, walk with you, and never leave you. Do you believe? Are you going through difficulties today, Christians? God said, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. I'm your reward. And like he made a promise to Abram, one day you're going to have that child. One day that's going to happen. It's going to take place. So stand as we sing. Chorus, believe. Then we'll close in prayer.